In this episode, I speak with Mr. Bill about his focused approach to electronic music production and touring, and how to develop multiple revenue streams with a sample pack company, a website-driven education business, a label, a podcast, and most recently collaborating with plugin developer Yum on the VST plugin Slap. Learn why he transitioned out of using Ableton for his live sets, and learn his approach to using over 82 tracks in a one-hour set. We talk about the impact AI is having on music creation and why Mr. Bill doesn't consider it a threat to his career. We even talk about managing anxiety as an important process for all artists to get through their self-limiting beliefs. So tune in and don't drop out. I'm sure you're going to get a lot out of my conversation with Mr. Bill. And if you're really serious, like we can go. And in those days, people had to have a clip. That's more what I mean. I'm not going to do something that isn't me. Okay, what's my next move? That willingness to play and collaborate. Mentor My Mix is made possible by Pyramind Music and Audio Production Institute. Evolve your sound with expert trainers and up-to-date courses designed to fit the needs of emerging artists and producers. Go to Pyramind.com for details about the San Francisco campus and online programs. So welcome. Welcome to the Mentor My Mix podcast. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate you having me. So first of all, I'd love to just start by you talking a little bit about the development of all these different facets of your career, because obviously you juggle a lot, right, in order to manage Mm -hmm. all those different elements. What got you started on this path? And when did you realize that you were going to really diversify as an entrepreneur in this industry? So I never really like had any one moment where I was like, all right, I've got this whole like rollout plan for my career. I'm going to start a podcast in this year and then start a website in this year or anything like that. I think I am just like a really curious person in general. And I just like to explore and try new things and whatnot. And yeah, I guess whenever I get a new idea for something where I'm like, that would like have some value to it. I think that people would enjoy and also be a thing that obviously I enjoy as well and could potentially make money. And like, I start having these thoughts of like a new thing that I could start doing. And then I have a chat with my manager, George, about it, who you're in the emails with. And we kind of just like figure out a way to make it happen and like start building out a plan for it and stuff. So it started with me just making music in like 20, shit, it was like 2007 or something. And you were still uh, back in Sydney back then in Australia? Is that right? Yeah, correct. I was making some music and then I decided to go to university, which was SAE in Sydney. I was studying audio engineering just because I wanted to sort of like further my knowledge with you know, music production and stuff. But I was mostly interested in electronic music, but I thought like getting an education there would be good. So I did that. And one of the units that we had in, I think, our second trimester there was web development. So I started doing this web development thing and the assignment was basically like, you got to make a website pretty much. So I was like, oh, cool. And then started like building this website thing. And I didn't really know what I was doing, but I had a friend who I would hang out with a lot at the time who was really, really deep into web development stuff. So I asked him to like help me with this assignment and pretty much like we just kept going back and forth with it. And it became like one of the most fun things and most engaging things that I was doing at the time. Like I was enjoying obviously the music production stuff that I was learning there too, but like building this website just became a thing that I found really interesting. So I started having all these ideas and at the time the subscription models were like not a big thing at all, 
But I was like, why not just like try this thing where we get people to pay like 10 bucks a month and just give them access to a bunch of information and all sorts of stuff. And, and I was making information like tutorial videos based on all the stuff that I was learning at university too. So I don't know, I just had this like idea to do all of that kind of stuff. And then all of the other things like the label and all that kind of stuff that, that came much later. The website was definitely the first thing, which was in like 2010 or 2011 or something. Uh, and at the time I was also putting like tutorial videos on YouTube as well. Did the web piece really influence your entrepreneurial spirit around this stuff? I mean, do you think you were kind of entrepreneurial out the gate or did that have a big influence in your decision to, you know, create this kind of online business model? Um, I think I was entrepreneurial out the gate and definitely the website is a product of that. But that was like the first, I think, entrepreneurial thing that I did. What platform did you program that in when you first started? The first one we used was this platform called Joomla, which is like, yeah, kind of similar to WordPress, I guess, which is what my site runs on now. But it wasn't that good. There's a lot of limitations with it. So it ran on that for about a year or two. And then we switched it over to WordPress, I don't know, like five or six years ago at this point, maybe more. And are you still coding your own site? Do you do it yourself or you have a team? No, not at all. I have one guy who like works full time on the site and he does everything. His name is Ben Body. And yeah, he's great. He does a really good job. Yeah, I don't I couldn't do all the things that I do on my own at all. I definitely have a lot of people helping me with all the stuff. Like I have George, the one who who you were chatting to, my manager. He basically runs Belegal Beats and Sounds. Belegal Beats being the music side of it and Belegal Sounds being the sample side of it. And then I have like my own sample label too, which is just called Mr. Bill's Tunes, which is on Splice and my website and stuff. And I pretty much run that with Ben, but George helps a lot with that as well. And then, yeah, there's a lot of people involved actually. On the Belegal side, George kind of like runs it all, but then we have a team of three visual artists and a marketing person and a mastering person as well. Uh, and then sort of three of us, split the job of listening to demos and selecting what we think is good and what is not. And yeah, I don't know, it all kind of like slowly built over time, I guess. And it was never really planned to be this way, but it got to a point where I started a Discord server in 2015 or so. And by like 2018 or 2019, I had like five to 10,000 people in there. And a lot of these people were making really cool music and I would get DMs a lot on Discord of people being like, what do I do with this? Where do I put it out? And I, I started realizing there was no real good label for like the current smaller, more niche IDM type artists. Like either you got like really big and then you could put stuff out on like Warp or Ghostly or Ninja Tune or like one of these big sort of experimental labels. And for the smaller ones, there just was really nothing. So I figured like, oh, cool. There's a lot of people surrounding this Discord server that have a lot of cool, you know, weird left field electronic music stuff that they're making. So I kind of wanted to make it for them. And it's really just been a passion project, to be honest. They're, <laughs> that thing has been like the least successful of the things that I've done for sure. Like the amount that it grosses is incredibly small because the music is so incredibly niche. It's a really hard product to sell. To I was going to ask about that because I, it's amazing to me, the level of success you had is pretty astounding considering you are kind of a niche producer in terms of the sound that you've adapted and even the ambient stuff that you do, right? And I've even heard you say yourself that it's pretty difficult to make a living just putting out ambient music or even electronic, you know, glitch bass music. 
So obviously you focus on other things or you diversify yourself to make it all work for yourself, right? And, and I guess for our listeners, I think they'd be really interested in knowing, you know, what aspect of all this diversity really do you focus most of your attention on or drives most of your revenue, I guess. Let me put it to you that way. So the one that I focus most of my attention on is shows and writing my own music because ultimately that's what I enjoy doing the most. And ultimately the reason I do all of the other stuff is so I can do that more because <laughs> I really yeah. just love to write music. Like that's what I like. Ideally, if I could spend my days doing anything, it would be that. And I would never do anything else. Like I wouldn't bother with the website. I wouldn't bother with like any, like I would just make music because I just love making music. So I focus most of my energy on that. But then as I'm doing that, I try to figure out like ways in which I can monetize it in different ways. And one of the biggest ways that I monetize making music is by playing shows like DJing. And that's been a slow and steady progress over the last like 10 years or something as well to where now I can actually kind of like make a little bit of money off it. But when I first started doing that, it was like really costing me money to do it. Uh, like traveling around and getting paid, you know, what, a couple hundred bucks and the flights were even more than that. And then I'd have to figure out accommodation and end up just sleeping on someone's couch. And like, yeah, it was like kind of shitty at first. But so that's where I focus most of my energy is mostly on writing music and building sets for shows and developing the live show and stuff. But the one that probably makes me the most money is the website. But it's probably an even split. Like the website and shows probably make about the same amount. And when you say the website, you're referring to education, you're referring to sample packs. What are you referring uh, to specifically? So the website is called mrbillstunes.com and on there people can subscribe for 20 bucks a month or 120 bucks a year. And they get access to a couple of courses that I've made. There's five courses called The Art of Mr. Bill, seasons one through five. And that's where I just write a song from start to finish and I don't skip over any detail. Like I let the person watching see literally everything I do from start to finish. I gotta say, I've watched some of those videos. Your fluidity with Ableton is pretty amazing. And it's also the speed at which you move. You know, I'm pretty fluid with it myself, but I've often watched you working and I'm like, wait, what did he just do? Hold on, rewind that, right? And that's pretty cool. I've always been impressed by that. Almost a stream of consciousness that you work with. Yeah, exactly. So I kind of try to like impart what I'm doing through that process when I'm making those courses so people can sort of try to incorporate some of those workflow things as well so they can maybe speed up their process a bit also. So that's like the main thing I think is the courses, but I also have sample packs on there and all of my live streams that I've ever done on Twitch are backlogged there. And I have another course called the Devices series, which explains what literally every knob on every single device in Ableton does. And people can get early podcast episode access there and all sorts of stuff. So yeah, basically that's the main thing that makes money is people will give me 20 bucks a month to basically access all of that. And I'm updating it like every month with new stuff, you know, whether it be new samples or a new video or something like that. So if you were to look back on this trajectory, I mean, obviously you're a passionate artist. You're somebody who does this because you love to make music. And if you were to look back on the trajectory of your career at this point, because you've been doing this, what, since 2007 or so, is that what we were saying? Uh, yeah, something like that. Yeah, so you've been doing it a good while now. If you were to give anybody any advice, what would you say looking back on that trajectory in terms of the order of events and the way things unfolded for you? 
So it's hard to say exactly why everything worked for me. I think the overarching thing is I just worked really hard. I don't think there was any one thing that really did it. So, I mean, I guess my advice would just be to work really hard, but I guess the more useful advice is probably to find something that you really enjoy doing because then you'll want to work hard. I don't think you can just be like, all right, I'm going to make like one video course and upload it to the internet and then that's going to make me money. It just doesn't work that way. You have to be consistent with releases. You have to do marketing. You have to, you can't really expect your first thing to do really well, but like slowly over time, there'll be a cascading effect of new fans who then go and get the old stuff and all of that kind of stuff. It just takes a lot of time to build a career in music, I think. Some people get lucky, but it's very rare. I, more often than not, people I know that are big are big because they just work really hard. Yeah, and how important then were other artists in terms of influencing you, but also helping you come up in your career? Bonding with other artists, building a community of like-minded producers and artists like yourself. Yeah, that was a huge thing, actually. I did a lot of collabs with a lot of artists, and I still do. And in my opinion, it's one of the best ways to learn is to make music with someone because then you can really sort of see their process and it kind of gives you new writing ideas and new production ideas and stuff like that. And definitely collaborating with a lot of people helped me a ton in terms of learning, at least like uh, learning stuff about Ableton and learning workflow tricks and stuff. Um, and also, yeah, just being friends with a lot of artists and having conversations with them. Obviously, we like talk business stuff sometimes as well. And it's definitely been useful to hear um, how everybody else kind of operates their business side as well. Right. That's what I thought. So how did you move into Ableton and did you get any formal training in it? Or is this something that you've just developed as you went along and through your collaborations created and developed your own workflow? Yeah, the Ableton stuff, I just developed my own workflow and kind of learned everything just grassrootsy kind of style. I didn't really get any formal education in Ableton specifically. I was using Ableton before I went to SAE. I was on like version five or something like that. And then at SAE, they tried to convert me over to like Pro Tools and Logic and all of that sort of stuff. But every time I used those programs, I was just like, they don't make as much sense to me. They feel clunky and they feel like they they don't really like achieve the same shit that I like to achieve in music, which is just making beats basically. And I feel like to make a beat in Logic or Pro Tools just feels kind of weird to me. And But before that, I was using GarageBand when I was younger. My parents had one of those iMacs and I used to mess around on that a bunch. And then a friend of mine who got me into this whole Psytrance community and stuff in Australia where I used to go sometimes to like, I used to go to these like Psytrance parties every other weekend or something. So my friend that I would go to those with, he got me into Fruity Loops. And then very soon after that, he himself got into Ableton and was like, oh, you should like try Ableton. So yeah, a friend basically got me into it off the back of like GarageBand and Fruity Loops. So you say used to go to Psytrance parties, you don't go to them anymore? No, I don't. And I mean, I don't live in Australia anymore. And Psytrance is really big in Australia. It's kind of weird. It's big all over the world, a lot less so over here, I'd say. Yeah, it's less, it's not very big in America. Now, look, I'm seeing the, some Pioneer DJ decks behind you there. You don't perform though with DJ decks, do you? Or do you? Am I misunderstanding? I thought you, don't you not use live Ableton when you're performing? Not anymore. I used to. I okay, because the like, last shows I saw, you definitely were. Yeah. Yeah, I, I used Ableton for many years. And I don't know, I, I kind of got to a point where I just realized that 
Pioneer has developed this system for playing tracks out live that is like 1 million percent optimized for doing that task and to try and replicate their years of you know progress and stuff in your own little Ableton setup with a MIDI controller just seems antiquated and it's like a regression from the CDJs really and whenever I've done live shows in the past like where I split up stems and whatever send MIDI to a visual guy to do synced visuals and all sorts of stuff like that. Obviously using Ableton for that kind of stuff is cool, but I just found it's just way too much work to build the set. Like I have to go through all my old tracks and stem everything. And then I have to build the set and then I have to figure out which parts I want to play live and then have those parts mute and like develop instruments to play those parts live and all sorts of stuff like that. And while it's fun, it's not as fun as just making music for me. <laughs> And ideally what I want to spend my life doing is making music, not really developing these live sets, you know? Yeah. So can you just talk a little bit about that process then for you? How do you transition from your Ableton sessions to the decks? Are you using stems or are you just taking pre-mixed tracks and then mixing? Yeah, I'm just taking pre-mixed tracks and mixing, but I try to be pretty active with my mixing. So like my latest set is, I always just play for one hour. My latest set is 82 tracks in an hour. Wow. So, You're doing a lot of blending. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. It's like, it's it honestly to me feels more active and busy than doing a live set in Ableton, at least any of the ones that I've done in the past. And it also feels like you have more flexibility as well, which is weird. Like it, you would think you would have way more flexibility with something like Ableton, but yeah, I don't know. I just, I feel like when I moved over to CDJs, like everything just made a lot more sense. Building sets took a lot less time and also was more fun. I much prefer building a set for CDJs than for Ableton. When you're building a set, is it uh, really preconceived or do you, do you leave anything up to the moment in terms of your track selection and the vibe that you're trying to create in the room? It's pretty much all preconceived. I know people say like, oh, you got to read the room and like pick the right track for the right moment and stuff like that. But I mean, I just don't have enough time to figure that out. It's like, how are you going to figure out like how the room is feeling and then what track is going to work for that and then find that track and play it in the span of like 20 seconds? <laughs> I, I don't think there's enough time. So, and if I do do that, and in the past when I have done that, I end up letting the track play out for like four minutes, you know, because I'm trying to figure out what to do next. And it just seems more boring in terms of like the listener. They get to hear just like a whole track playing for four minutes versus like, you know, new ideas being dropped every 30 seconds. And it's more stressful for me because I'm like stressing out. I'm having a much worse time. Mm -hmm. The audience is like, this is boring. There's not enough going on. So they're having a less good time. It's like, it's just, it just seems worse for everyone involved. Yeah, yeah, I, I see that. And that's interesting. You know, there's a lot of different perspectives on this. So it's interesting to hear yours. And it, using that many tracks, are you using more than two decks? You're going to four decks. How many decks are you using at a time? Yeah, usually four. But usually I'm only ever using three. Uh -huh. And then queuing you, up the fourth? Well, yeah, usually there's only ever like two to three playing at a time, but there's a few moments in the set where I need all four, but it's pretty rare. It's like twice in the set. Do you ever like to work with vocalists or any instrumentalists in your sets? 
Um, in my sets, I haven't really done that. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I did like when I did live shows with Ableton, I had a drummer playing with me and I had like visual guys and stuff. I didn't have any vocalists. Um, but since DJing, no, I kind of just like do my own thing with that. But I'd be open to it. Like, for instance, some of my tracks on my new album that I'm working on right now have vocals on them. So I could see myself, you know, playing out an instrumental version uh, while somebody sings it if the timing lines up right and we're playing the same festival or something. And are you playing a lot of effects on the decks when you're running your tracks or are you re relying on your premix mostly? I use a lot of effects for transitions and stuff, but I try to use them as little as possible. I only use them if I think it needs it. I kind of hate when I like hear a set and somebody's putting the jet taking off flanger <laughs> on like every single track. You know? yeah. Or, you know, like, and the same applies to people with Ableton sets who stem their stuff out. I kind of hate listening to a set where you just hear someone like beat repeating the drums every other bar or something. I mean, like if somebody sends me a, a track, like if they play it live, if they send it to me on SoundCloud via email, whatever, if the drums have a beat repeat on them every other bar, it just, I don't, know, think, it, don't think it really sounds that good. But that's really like one of the main ideas that comes to mind when building a live set, I think is like, oh yeah, I could have this stem and then I could put a beat repeat on it every now and then. I don't know. To me, that's just not enough of a selling point to play a live set. Right. Well, obviously now with the decks, it probably makes touring a lot easier for you and certainly more fun is what it sounds like, right? That's the other thing. Yeah. It's like without having to travel with an interface and a MIDI controller and all this other gear. Yeah. It's nice to just be able to travel with a USB stick. And now what about your collabs with visual artists? Because I know you've done quite a bit of that, right? In terms of your show and your set, there's a big visual component to that. Yeah, definitely. So at the moment, I have a pack of about like 300 visual loops that was made by the guy who's done my art forever, who goes by the name Funny Lab. He's an Italian artist. He did the cover for Phantasmagoria and he's done all of my art for a long time now. He basically that's like, that ghost, is that like kind of ghost image, the, the Phantasmagorica one, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really cool. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. So he did that. So we've got like a pack of about three or 400 visual loops that all kind of look like in that same style. And then usually I just send that pack to whoever's running video at the event. And then they, prior to the show, will hopefully have loaded it all into Resolume and they just kind of like trigger clips. Um, so lately it hasn't really been synced, though I'm doing a show soon at Lost Lands, which is this festival in Ohio where Funny's actually coming over for it. And we're going to try and do like a pretty well synced show. And for that, I think we're going to try to use Show Control by TC Supply which basically creates a SMPTE like time code ghost file that runs alongside any of the tracks that you trigger. And then you, you can hook that into Resolume or whatever. So you can basically do a synced AV show with CDJs. So I see some really cool hardware behind you over there as well. What's your go-to hardware these days in your productions? Honestly, I don't really use the hardware that much. I have it. And if I want to use it, I can, but I really don't use it that much. Like I'll use it on maybe one every 20 tracks or something, but I have a um, Arturia Polybrute, which is like a pretty nice analog synth. And then I have a OB6 by Dave Smith Instruments. Yeah, I see the OB, I see the Poly, and what's up on your racks up there? Uh, it's just a bunch of modular stuff, like Euro rack stuff. And then I have a Axe FX, which is a guitar processor. And then a patch bay, just to patch everything in and out of one another, and, and then an interface. But 
I also have one of the Polyend trackers down here, which I find so fun. Like I would never probably release anything I make on it, but it's just such a fun toy to play with. And you realize once you use one of those that like, this is how Breakcore is made. This is how IDM is made like with a tracker. Oh it just yeah. Makes, it makes so much sense. Like when you start messing with it and I'm like, oh my God, this is like every Venetian snare song. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then I have a, an old electron analog heat, which is, pretty nice distortion unit that I run some things through sometimes but not very often and then I have a vinyl player over there which I actually just run into the tracker so I can sample vinyl into it. Oh that's cool. Well now you've recently partnered with Yum Audio on something pretty cool called Slap, right? Well it's a transient replacer so it's designed mostly for drums to like make your drums slap hence why it's called Slap and it listens to the incoming audio and you can tell it to replace the first X amount of milliseconds with a click of your choice or any sample of your choice. So yeah, it's just, it's like a really good way for beefing up drums and adding a bit more punch to them and other, it does have a clipper on it though. Yeah. That's what I noticed. Um, but so talk a little bit more about how you got involved in making a plugin like this. How does somebody go about doing that? If anybody was interested in doing something like this, what would you advise them? And or better yet, how did you do it? So the way I did it, I can't necessarily suggest is like a way to do it. Because all I did is put a video on YouTube out about how to replace transients on your drums. And then Yum Audio hit me up and they were like, hey, we watched this video and we think that you could actually turn this into a plugin. And oh. I was like, all right, yeah, let's do it. So we spent the next two years just developing this plugin. But yeah, I mean, I can't really suggest that to anyone else. Like just put a video on YouTube and just hope a software development company reaches out to you because that doesn't seem like it would very reliably work. But a lot of the things in my career have happened like that. Like for instance, I just one day got an email from Brian Taylor and he wanted me to score a Nicolas Cage movie. And that, like, again, I can't really recommend that as a strategy for anyone who wants to get into scoring movies. No, but I think there is a theme here with you. I mean, there's definitely a theme or a strategy of your ability and willingness to really put yourself out there and put your knowledge out into the world, share that with the world and and all your ideas and your workflow. And I think that seems to have been a real big catalyst in how you've manifested your career, right? Yeah, which I guess comes back to the first thing I was saying, which is just work really hard. And then I think eventually people will reach out to you and want to do stuff. But yeah, I don't really know what else to say as advice other than that. But yeah, I think a, a lot of people don't put themselves out there enough. Like there's a lot of anxiety that comes with being an artist. Like you putting out content, you're always like worried about what people are going to think about it and whether or not that it actually has any value and is even worth putting out and all this kind of like artistic anxiety that comes with that. So I think like part of being a good artist is being able to battle with yourself on those things too and just be like, that's the best I can do. Fuck it, I'm going to put it out sort of thing. You know? Yeah. Do you have any like time management secrets at this point? What do you do in terms of how you, you know, obviously anxiety isn't so much an issue for you these days, I'd say. It's more how do I balance all the things that I'm trying to do out? And what would you say to somebody who says, wow, how do you do all of this, man? Anxiety is very much a thing for me, for sure. Um, I think I'm just like really good at this point at like identifying it and just kind of putting it to the side and just realizing that it's just anxiety 
and like the worst case of putting something out is it just doesn't do very well or some people don't like it and it's kind of like logic my way out of it <laughs> but, but isn't there always of, going to be people like that i mean any artist knows yeah, exactly that that's there's what, always going to be somebody who's not going to like what you're doing there's you just can't please everybody that's for sure ex yeah exactly and that's a really good mindset to have i think if you're putting stuff out is just realize that there's going to be some people that like it. There's going to be some people that don't. Maybe everyone just doesn't give a shit, but like whatever it is, like you might as well put it out. Cause otherwise, like if success is your goal and like you want to have a job in music, you have to kind of do that. In terms of time management, no, I don't really have any strategies for that. I kind of, I just kind of wake up and just work. <laughs> uh, <and laughs> Looks like you got a nice studio there. Did you uh, custom build that environment for yourself? Uh, I didn't, but my friend did, yeah. That's sweet. Yeah. Looks like a nice room. So you just, is that your, like, just your man cave, your room, your studio, home studio environment there? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah. I spend a lot of time in here. I pretty, yeah, basically I just wake up and then come straight in here and load up whatever session I was working on last night and have another listen to it work. Like at the moment, I'm really just working on my album. So it's just kind of all day, every day mix downs at the moment. Uh-huh. Do you have any recommendations for a morning routine that you do to like kind of get your head set and ready for being optimally creative? Honestly, I don't really have one. I just, I mean, I guess my routine is I just wake up and make myself some coffee and then come in the studio and start working. I try not to look at any like social media or emails or anything like that. I almost exclusively try not to look at it, but like certainly absolutely not in the morning because I can like really fuck up your mood or also just like you can get distracted really easily. But yeah, so I very much try to hold off on any emails or social media until well into the afternoon. Yeah. So no meditation, no yoga, no, no kind of head practice or anything like that for you. It's just like straight, nothing, to, straight to it. Yeah. Nothing like that. I, though I have lately been trying to go outside first thing in the morning to get some sun in my eyes, which is something that I heard on the Andrew Huberman podcast. Yes, that's good. Uh-huh. Yeah, he said it like helps you wake up or something like that. So I've been trying to do that and then trying to delay caffeine for a little longer than normal. So <laughs> uh, that that's about it though, really. It's like, I don't really have- Well, that early, early morning sunlight is supposed to be really good for your eyeballs, um, especially when you spend as much time as we do looking at computer screens. You know, it's supposed to offset that near field focusing that we're doing all the time that causes us all to have to wear these things, you know, because of the deterioration over time. And I know I'm older than you are, so I can tell you I've probably got quite a bit more of it. But it does, it definitely happens from all that screen time that we spend. Anything you want to share with our audience in terms of in the very near future? I'm sure you got something cooking, right? Yeah, I got a new album and hopefully it'll be out by January but not 100% sure on that. We're still trying to lock a release date in right now, but... Is this coming out on your label? It's not. It's coming out on a bigger label, but I don't really think I should say who that is right now. Oh, okay. But people will find out at some yeah. point. Yeah, and any collaborations we can know about on this one? Yeah, a bunch. Actually, I can tell you about those. Let's see. Got a collab with Clockvice and Van Gran, who's a singer. One with Copycat and Def3, uh, one with Culprit, a couple of Eli Derp collabs, Zebler and Kanti Experience collab, Exorbiter collab, Garden Sound collab, Infected Mushroom collab, collab with Noir, collab with Scope, Underbelly and Alicia are on one of the tracks, Vector is on one, and The Whittler is on one. 
So yeah, bunch, bunch of Wow, that's a huge assortment of amazing artists. The Encanti duo, I know last time we saw you here in San Francisco, I think it was at the Midway, and you were touring with those guys. Any hopes to see you guys all touring again together at any point? Uh, I hope so, yeah. I really like traveling with Ben. He's a really nice guy and really smart too. Like he's probably one of the best Ableton instructors I, I know of. Mm, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, and, and amazing so. amazing with the visuals, too. I mean, I remember him talking about that when you guys were doing a presentation at the Midway that we uh, shot with you guys. Yeah, man, he definitely knows what he's doing in that realm as well. So, yeah, he's one of the most knowledgeable people I know in the music industry, for sure. He recently got a degree over COVID. I think he did a PhD on computer science or something or max i don't know he's making plugins now so that's kind of cool why am i not surprised hey you know before we do split up here you know there's one subject that we didn't actually touch on that i do want to get into a little with you here and that's ai you know because mm. there's so much buzz around ai and do you see it as a threat to your career as an artist or are you seeing it as something that you can really embrace and use as you know as you develop here um, so the way that I think about this question is how many times have I like heard a song where I've been like, oh, that's perfect. I wouldn't change a single thing about it. Like how many times is that for you? Like how often do you hear like a loop or a sample or a song where you're like, ah, oh, there's nothing I'd change. That's perfect. It never happens. Yeah. So, I mean, I have a hard time, like, even though I believe that AI is going to be able to develop some really impressive things even like models that I've trained on my entire discography, anything it spits out, I'm like, oh, it gives me another idea to do a different thing, you know? So I don't really like ever see it like deleting the purpose for me to want to make music or ever destroying my inspiration to make it because anything that it spits out, I'm just going to be inspired to do something with that was different to the thing that it spat out. I think people have this idea that it's just going to be like shitting out perfect music and there'll be no need for a human to ever make music and people like lose their purpose to make it because an AI can just do it better or whatever. I have a really hard time envisioning that, but the stuff that it can do already is really impressive. Like it can create the best sounding samples I've ever heard. Or like it's really good at replicating things. Which AI tools are you using to do that right now? Uh, primarily, I'm using Dance Diffusion, which is a fork of Stable Diffusion, which just creates MEL spectrogram images in the background and then does image to audio synthesis with the image. So it's literally just Stable Diffusion, but instead of the images being, you know, whatever mid-journey looking stuff, they're literally just making images of spectrograms and then that spectrogram just gets converted to audio. You have to train it on a folder of sounds and then it like, you know, figures out how to make sounds like that. So I trained it on like all, all of my samples, like a bunch of kick drums, a bunch of snare drums, and it was able to generate a bunch more that were just as good as the original sounds. So then can you enhance your sample packs by doing that? Um, yes, but there's obviously like some moral and ethical stuff to think about. Like I wouldn't do it if I trained it on a bunch of say virtual riot sounds or something like that. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I don't see a problem with it. I know that there's a lot of controversy around it at the moment. Whenever you like say, oh, here's a bunch of shit that I made with AI, especially on Twitter, there's a bunch of people who are like, ooh, that's fucked up. Just can you please not do that, et cetera. And I just, I don't know, man. I don't think these people have like really thought about it much past the popular belief system that it's going to remove a lot of jobs and cause a lot of, there's going to be a bunch of growing pains basically. And, and I agree, that's true. But 
I don't know, I think AI is also going to be like one of the best things that's ever happened for humanity. Like think about if you just have a thing in your pocket, like your phone, all of a sudden just is like your personal doctor and your personal therapist and your personal educator. And like everyone has this personal assistant in their pocket that's able to do literally anything. There's no need to go anywhere. It's like, it'd be so convenient. And yes, there'll be some growing pains and some jobs lost in the process. But I think at the, like the reward seems to far outweigh the cost in my opinion. But I mean, who knows? Like we'll see how it all plays out, I guess. But yeah, in the audio realm, it's really interesting. And yeah, I don't think it's going to remove the need for making music altogether, but I think it's going to be more of a collaborator. Well, yeah, I mean, there are two components to that. I mean, there's the Grimes model. Uh, you know, you've heard about what she's done, right? In terms of using her voice, you can use her voice. Yeah, as long as you pay her the royalties or whatever. Exactly, yeah. But then there's the other side of that coin where like, you can train the AI on your music right? Is there a model there, you think, where you can entrain the AI and then anything it spits out with your entrainment, you would earn a royalty on? Uh, yeah, I mean, in theory, but yeah, I mean, I guess so. You could make like a 24-7 Mr. Bill generative radio or something that people could subscribe right. to or something. I mean, is, is that something you've thought about or am I just coming out of left field here? No, I think that's probably possible, yeah, but I don't know if it's like ever going to completely scratch, like, Anything that I've heard it generate at this point is far from anything that an original artist who the model was trained on makes. You know, like the stuff that it generates that that is trained on my stuff sounds fine. It sounds like it sounds like a Mr. Bell track, but it doesn't sound like a good Mr. Bell track. <laughs> it sounds like it's a little bit all over the place still. And I think that that'll improve. And I don't know. It's hard, really hard to say uh, what like how good it will get. And the other thing to remember is that AI can only do what it's trained on. It can't like really create anything new. It can just combine all of the stuff that it has been told. And really that's the same as a human, right? It's like very rare that a human just has like a, an idea in a vacuum where kind of just compilers of different information. Yeah, but the AI is just gonna keep getting smarter, right? I mean, this is just the beginning. As it keeps learning, it keeps understanding and, and actually ultimately develops its own aesthetic, then that could change the game again. I mean, completely. Right now, it's just, it's kind of an, at the infancy stages of its learning process. Yeah, but also we could just be on the exponential part of the curve as well. You know, like for instance, when the automobile started getting invented, at the start of it, like when it just started getting invented, you probably were like, oh man, in like 50 years, this thing's going to be so crazy. It's just going to keep improving and improving until like it's just a tiny little silver box that can fly and go a million miles an hour and we can get anywhere in one second and like yeah. all of this kind of shit. But like, <laughs> yeah, well, technology really, hasn't kept up with that. But well, really, what happened is the car got to a point where it served our purposes and then it really didn't like develop much further than that. Obviously, you've got like EVs and shit now, but like still like it's a car that is not like exponentially better than they were in say the 70s or the 50s or whenever. So I don't know, maybe we're just like on that exponential part of the curve with AI and maybe it'll not keep improving exponentially like we think it will. Well, we'll see, won't we? We've got a long way to go with this one. I think we're just getting started. Yeah, no, I agree. It's interesting to see where it will go for sure, but hard to say if it's just going to like get exponentially better like people think it will yeah no doubt so weren't you just in san francisco recently yeah i played a show there on sunday night actually at dna lounge yeah how was that 
It was good. I mean, it was a little bit of a weird vibe because it was a bunch of like 18 year olds, I guess, like DNAs and all ages thing. So it was kind of interesting, but they had a lot of energy and they were fun. So yeah, it was a good vibe. It was all the non-burners hanging out. Uh, <laughs> Actually, I knew that there was going to be a storm at Burning Man. Like that was known. I was kind of hoping that it would like drive a bunch of people back to San Francisco and then they would come to my show because they still wanted to party or whatever. But the storm was unfortunately too potent and it trapped everyone there. So that kind of sucked. Sure did. It's the first year I hadn't actually gone to the play in quite a few, actually. I've, I've never been. I really want to, though. Oh, yeah. You got to go. It's something to experience for sure, especially as an artist like yourself. I think you would definitely appreciate it out there. Yeah, the stories I've heard about it are crazy, and I really do need to check it out when you... It's just a lot of effort. Like you have to, you basically have to take your house into the desert for a week and figure out a bunch of shit. Yeah, it's just, every year it comes up, I'm like, oh, I don't have the bandwidth to figure this out. Well, all right, so that goes right back to community. That's not the kind of thing you want to do alone. I mean, there's burners out there who have mastered the art, I would say, of burning and doing it with their own, you know, survival world. But I think, you know, having community that can support you and, and being out there as an artist, I would certainly recommend that. Yeah, that's what I've been told as well. And yeah, I just need to find a good crew to go with, I guess. Yeah, definitely. Hey, man, this has been awesome. I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me here today and be on the Mentor My Mix podcast. Uh, wish you all the best with your new album. I can't wait to hear it. I'm sure it's going to be awesome, man. Thanks, man. Yeah, I appreciate you having me. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, we'll uh, hopefully uh, see you in San Francisco again sometime soon, huh? Yeah, I hope so. I really like it there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we miss you out here, man. You and cool. Ben, the whole gang, man. <laughs> All right, cool. Peace out, man. Remember, if you have a guest suggestion or want to contact me for any reason, we have a contact form on the Mentor My Mix website. That's mentormymix.com. Or feel free to email me at greg at mentormymix.com. Special thanks to Quinn Grodzins for the theme music and audio editing, Josh Valdez and Sean McKenna for audio and video production, and Corice Joubert for video editing and post-production.